Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and join with me in Galatians chapter 5. And let me ask you, does it matter what we believe? Is it important, by the way, for a church to make a stand for certain beliefs? Do those truths that we see in Scripture, do they change with time and with culture or popularity? Is it okay to pick and to choose what portions of Scripture we believe? Today, many people would say, yes. The Bible is old-fashioned. It was written a long time ago, and things have changed. Bill Nye, in this debate we're about to have, is one of those ones who believes that the belief in creation, that Christianity is child abuse because they're teaching creationism to their children. And to him, that's wrong, and we're going to be a, a nation of illiterate science people, science illiteracy. They may ask the question, was Adam and Eve a historical figure? Or are they just literary devices? Did the flood really happen? Is the Bible really the Word of God? Or should it be taken literally or figuratively? Can we pick and choose what to believe? For many of us, we may say, of course not. We believe what the Bible says. But to many churches, to many people today, that is not the case. Let me give you a couple examples. There was a young lady, she posted just the other day on Facebook, a picture of herself as a baby. And with the caption, she wrote, this is me without sin. And she sees some gentle pushback from her friends questioning her statement. And she responded back with scripture saying, I just came from heaven into this wicked world of sin. And she quotes Psalms 139 that we have today. Amen. Again, it's a nice statement. And somewhat true, but it's not accurate, as Psalms 51 tells us that I was brought forth or born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Unfortunately, her incomplete understanding leads to error and untrue statements concerning the revelation of God's word to us about our standing. There's another one this past week, and it was found in the Orange County Register, and I like to read it. And that's concerning the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now, I had heard that phrase. Again, it's a Catholic doctrine. And in it, that doctrine states that not only was Jesus sinless, but Mary herself was sinless. And I don't think I ever understood that that's what they believed, that Mary herself was without sin. She, too, was uh, born without sin. Let me read this to you. And there may be some things that you may see. On December 9th, she writes, Roman Catholics celebrated the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Catholics believe that in order to prepare Mary for becoming the mother of Christ, God allowed her to be the first woman since Eve to be created without original sin. Hence the celebration of Mary's Immaculate Conception. So they're saying that she is born herself without sin. She goes on to write, now, now you start to see why she believes this. And this is important. See if you can catch this. She says, and here's the phrase, and this set the context, as a woman, 
I relish the balance that the Catholic Church brings to the Genesis story. She goes on to say, if you're Catholic, then Mary was also created without sin, not standing. Well, what if you're not Catholic? In other words, does it really matter if you're Catholic or non-Catholic? Is it truth for one and untruth for another? It can't be both, can it? There must be one. She goes on to say, in contrast, it says she remained obedient to God. She goes on to say, because nothing is specifically written about the conception. Now, here she's now going to relate it to the Bible. So far, it's Catholic teaching. So what does the Bible say? Was Mary born a virgin? She goes, unfortunately, because nothing is specifically written about the conception of Mary in the Bible, many non-Catholics feel this doctrine to be heretical. Now, what is she basing that on? The fact that there's no evidence to say that she was. The Feast of the Immaculate Conception, though, was formally adopted by the church in 1854. So 1,800 years after Christ, they finally made this a feast, but it had been a holy day before the 8th century. So sometime in the 8th century, this concept of Mary being born innocent of original sin came up. Now listen to her defense of why this should be so. When Martin Luther led his protest against the Catholic Church, his initial thesis had nothing to do with the dogma surrounding Mary. His 95 thesis, written in 1517, were concerned with the corrupt method that church leaders at this time were using to collect money in the form of indulgences. So she gives you a history lesson that it was true. When he put his thesis on there, that great reformer, the one who began the Protestant Reformation as we know today, he did not mention the belief that Mary was born without sin. She goes on to say, as grateful as I am for the courage of Luther to lead a much-needed reformation, she would agree to that. She goes, I am sad that many of my Christian brothers and sisters remain wary of teachings of the Catholic Church. The Immaculate Conception should not be one of them. In other words, since Martin Luther did not make it an issue, it should not be an issue for us today. But then listen, here's the kicker. She goes on then to really say why she believes that Mary was born a virgin. Because it makes sense, and I'm quoting, it makes sense that if a woman, Eve, is to be blamed for the fall of mankind, then a woman, Mary, should be included in the redemption of it. Now, as you read that, it says, wow, that's pretty persuasive. But yet, what she does is she uses a little bit of Scripture, a little bit of Catholic teaching, and a non-event or non-recording of it to say, well, this is what I believe it should be, and I think you should accept it, even though the Bible has no evidence of it. Now, in there, as I read it, I find several different problems there. For one, she gets her whole premise right. It's not Eve that is to be blamed for the fall of mankind, as Scripture tells us, by what? One man's sin did sin enter into the world. And by that sin, disobedience. So she gets Scripture incorrect and then continues to make a statement. So again, does the Bible, does the truth really matter? In some examples, it doesn't. It's just what you like to feel and what makes sense or is reasonable to you. 
Even today, we can see how allowing false doctrines can lead to confusion and error in the view of marriage, in the view of homosexuality, or gender roles, or protection for the preborn, or origins of the universe, and the libertarian laws dealing with victimless crimes. And we find ourselves in this mess, which we call the evangelical church, where Christian really doesn't matter and what the Bible says is irrelevant. Does it really matter what truth is? According to the Christian apologist and research ministry, doctrine is a set of accepted beliefs that is held by a group. In religion, it's a set of true beliefs that define the parameters of that belief system. Hence, there is true doctrine and false doctrine relative to each belief set. In Christianity, for example, a true biblical doctrine is one in which there is only one God in all of existence. A false doctrine is that there's more than one God in all of existence. But yet we would say that even in that statement, there may be some who believe in many gods, but yet we would still call them Christians. And in some cases, even evangelical. In other words, doctrine really doesn't matter anymore. It's just what you want to believe, what's reasonable to you. But as you and I have discovered in our reading in Galatians, doctrine is important. As Paul is perplexed by the actions of the churches of Galatia as they have abandoned true teaching of the gospel and what real doctrine is. He doesn't understand why they've started out so strong only to be seduced by the demands of the Judaizers to return to observing the Mosaic Law in order to become children of God. As we have learned, no one, neither Jew or Gentile, is commanded to live on the Mosaic Law, as we are now living the days of the promise of Abraham being fulfilled, as Christ is the offspring, not only of Abraham, but also of Genesis chapter 3.15. And he is the offspring that brings the blessings of Abraham and the blessings that crushes the head of the snake. And that's salvation. And all those that put their trust in the finished work of Christ belong to the family of Abraham. That's the doctrine, that's the teaching that Paul says is worth defending and holding on. For the law, though it is given by God, and it is good and it is pure, it imparts no power to keep it and does not grant eternal life. We've learned this. This is a matter of review for you and I. Paul had written to the Corinthians that the law kills instead of making one alive. In essence, Paul is saying that the Jews have been enslaved by the law and they're not free from the bondage to sin and death. You may recall that I gave a quote from John MacArthur where he writes that the Mosaic law leads to bondage because it depended on the flesh, on self-reliance, on works. Paul argued against going back to the Mosaic law and commands that the Galatians were to stand firm and resist the pressure to submit to circumcision and the law. Paul has been simply teaching that you can either rely on the human strength and self-works or you can rely on God's strength and God's promises. Again, though, to the Judaizers and the Galatians, they're asking, well, what's wrong? To adding and subtracting to the gospel or scripture. What's wrong with saying, yes, it's salvation by grace, but let's do these works. What's wrong with that? We're going to find that there are some pearls of adding and subtracting 
to God's word. Father, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and mind this morning to receive your word with gladness, to receive your word with all and reverence, to understand your word. May your Holy Spirit have free reign. May it take the words and, and take them and make them understandable to us. Help us to apply them to our lives. Let us rejoice in your word, but let us also fall before it in understanding that this is truth. It is the very words of life. And Father, may your spirit do the work of discerning between my words and your words. And may you plant it deep in the heart of each person here today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Take your Bibles and let's continue then in Galatians chapter 5. As we look at this doctrine matter, and I'm here to tell you that there's the pearls, there is some disadvantages, there's some dangers to allowing false doctrine to come in, to adding and subtracting to the gospel. For that's the issue here at Church of Galatia. And we look at verse 2 as Paul says, Look, I, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, in other words, if you accept adding to the gospel, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Last week in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul had given the churches of Galatia an imperative. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Amen? So he goes on to say, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this imperative has come from the arguments that Paul laid out in chapters 2 and 4 that we so meticulously went through. He says, until now, he has used theological, historical, logical, and even relationship to teach the importance of holding on to the gospel and to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. But now in verse 2, Paul is now going to assert his own authority as an apostle of Christ when he writes, I, Paul. He's bringing to attention. He says, listen, I'm speaking now of my own authority. Listen up, hear what I have to say. As he now applies what he has been teaching, which is circumcision is not just a matter of opinion and preferences. Adding to or subtracting to the gospel is a serious offense. As Paul had wrote earlier, that anyone who does so is accursed. Remember that in chapter 1. In other words, listen to this. To add or subtract or to take away from doctrine, you have to realize that eternal destinies are at stake. You and I have to realize that. There are many philosophies and religions and other types of beliefs out there. But in the end, eternal destinies are at stake. And sometimes we feel like Christianity or even any branch of Christianity, every denomination and every other belief, we believe it's just a point of seeing who can debate the best. Well, you may get points for the debate, but in the end, it's someone's life that's at stake. 
And so the gospel is precious, not because it's only just the words of God, but because it's the life, the words that give life. And to add or subtract to it, he says here, is going to lead to great pearl. In today's passage, Paul refers back to what he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. In there, he was telling us the story of how some Judaizers in Jerusalem were pressuring Titus, his companion, who was a Gentile, to be circumcised. And he reminds them in that passage that even the apostles, James and John and Peter, he says even they did not request or say that they had to be circumcised. They did not agree with it. They took a strong stand so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. And that's important to understand. The apostles said circumcision and Mosaic law takes away from the gospel. It does not add to it. It does not give any benefit or advantage. Meaning that the acceptance of the gospel does not mean one has to revert to observing the Mosaic law or any type of works, I might add. Instead, we are to stand in the freedom of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. So Paul is addressing the dangers of submitting to circumcision. The Galatians must make a choice of who or what they're going to rely on for justification or how one is made right before God. Now Paul is going to start by making a bold claim here. That if they relied on the works of the law rather than the works of Christ, there will be no advantage to them. In essence, what he's saying is that when you stand before God, and let me remind you, it is a holy, righteous, pure God, as we all will one day, they will have neither an advocate to plead their case or any excuse as they stand before God to give an account of themselves. Remember, Paul had told the church of Rome that no one is justified or made right before God by obeying God. The law. So let me give this to you. There's some disadvantages that Paul is going to say. He says adding or subtracting to the gospel is no advantage. Trying to live by works or trying to obey it by your own flesh, there's no advantage. He shares three ways. Some disadvantages as many to the law. In verse 3, as you see in your screen, it says they were obligated. If you said that you were going to obey the law, you were obligated to keep the whole law. But you and I know that to keep the whole law is impossible. In chapter 3 of verse 10 of Galatians, we had already seen that Paul had wrote, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a what? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So he says, go ahead. Say that you're going to go to circumcision. Go ahead and try the dietary laws. Go ahead and preserve the Sundays and the months and the Sabbath and do all the feasts. But let me tell you, if you choose to do so, you're obligated to do the whole enchilada. And the problem is, is you're not able to. You are, it is impossible for you and I to do so. God demands what? In, in, in Matthew chapter 4, 48, God demands that we must be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And let me tell you, there is no one from Abraham to John the Baptist who perfectly kept the whole law. 
Paul, in his arrogance, said, I kept the whole law, but realized that he himself was self-deluded in his natural state. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came and breathed on him and regeneration, making him born again, that he realized the futility of trying to live by a standard of rules and regulations. The second disadvantage we see is in verse 4. As they are severed from Christ's work on their behalf. In Galatians chapter 3, 24 and June 25, you'll see it there. It says the law was our guardian until Christ came. That was his purpose. It was in order that we might be justified by faith, not by works. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under guardian in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith. So you can be one or the other. You cannot be in Christ and outside of Christ. And Paul says, if you want to follow the law, fine. But you're obligated to do it all. And not only that, you're severed from Christ's grace. Don't think that when you fail, Christ's grace is going to come because He's not there for you. He has gone on. But not only that, he tells us in verse 4, as we look at the third one, not only are they severed from Christ's work on their behalf, they are now fallen from grace. And that's an important statement in chapter 4, verse 9 of Galatians. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. Remember, we looked at that great uh, phrase right there, to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? In other words, to turn your back on the work of Christ is to walk away completely. Who wants to do that? Paul is saying, listen, to walk away from the true doctrine of the gospel. There's no advantage to you. Look at the pros and cons. There's either freedom in Christ from works or there's slavery to works. Do the math. It doesn't add up. Do not add or subtract to the gospel. For in it there's freedom. You see, there's self-reliance on flesh. That is, their desire to earn their own righteousness actually leads to death and to judgment. That's the pearl of false doctrine. The pearl of false doctrine, listen to this, this is important, is to stand before God, judge according to one's own merit that falls short of God, and it leads to death. So Paul warns them, Stay grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the doctrine that's been passed from one or the other. Hold on to the whole counsel of God. So there's his warning. And many times people say, well, why does he give us so many warnings? He always seems to be so down on everybody. God uses those warnings to preserve us, to keep us on track to keep our eyes from desiring things that we should not desire. Starting in verse 5, though, Paul states that rather than trusting in their own works, true believers of Christ actually trust wholly in the righteousness of God. So on one hand, you can trust in the works of the flesh, the works of the law, and in that, you're obligated to serve all of them. You're severed from the works of Christ. There are no advantage to you. You cannot claim them as your own. And you are separated from the grace of God. But if you trust in the gospel, in the freedom of Christ, look what happens in verse 5. 
For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. If you have your Bible, and in verse 5, would you just underline that word eagerly wait? I believe that's a phrase many times we just lose. There's something important there that you and I need to understand. And as now Paul states why they should stay in the freedom of Christ. For it is only in Christ that we have the hope of righteousness. Now that hope, we've got we to understand the biblical concept of hope. Hope is not wishful thinking, but a confident expectation that we will finally not only be saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin, but also one day we'll be accepted by God and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen? That's what you and I eagerly wait. There's something important there to understand is that you and I don't produce our own righteousness. See, that's what the Judaizers did. You and I did that ourselves in our own conscience. We may not have understood it. We may not have understood all what we were trying to do, but we were trying to produce our own righteousness in our own power. But we don't have to produce our own righteousness because God gives us the righteousness of Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and 19 says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, amen, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You and I, the freedom of the gospel says, you do not have to produce a righteousness that stands before God and says that you are accepted by God. It's something that is a gift, something that we do not deserve, that God says, here is something that is not your own. Hence why the scripture many times will use the old word alien righteousness, something that is not of our own, something that's far from us. You see, righteousness is not something that you and I produce, but it's something that's given to us by the merits of Christ's obedience. Thomas Schreiner, a pastor, writes that the law tries to find righteousness by doing and obeying grace, while Christ bestows righteousness as a gift. And it's sad to say that there are many people who profess to be Christians who are still trying to earn their own righteousness. Even by the good works of reading their Bible, tithing, going to a church, being baptized, doing all the things that we would say good Christians do, but yet they're producing death. And I pray that there may be some that are doing that. If it's so, then please see that the only way that you can ever stand before a holy God it's not by righteousness produced by your own self, but by the righteousness that's graciously and mercifully given to us. However, even with that gift of righteousness, and even though all believers are saved from the penalty and power of sin, you and I are keenly aware and sensitive to the presence of sin still in our lives. 
That's why Paul warns them to continue to trust in the gospel. For it is in the gospel that you and I find the strength to fight sin and have the peace of a clear conscience to live out our faith in flawed obedience. See, understand that. As a Christian, I understand that I am to fight sin, but yet I know that my obedience, as much as I yearn to obey God, is still flawed. With every offering that I give to God of my good works as a Christian, it is flawed. It is not perfect. It is not pure. It's tainted even by my own pride and my own arrogance. It's tainted even by, by, by the evil that sometimes still is within me. I understand that. And still yet there is that struggle of Romans chapter 7 of how we're to be aware and sensitive to the sin that is still in our lives. Though we now have the power and are away from the penalty that presence of sin still gives to us. Hence why that verse 5 is so important. For until that day of final deliverance, we are to eagerly await that day when God makes all things new. Amen? I may be flawed today. My obedience may be flawed today. Yours may be tainted by sin today, but there is a day that you and I are eagerly awaiting. God's promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 49 is that just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, speaking of Christ. For that's why we are blessed in Christ, so that we may be conformed to his image. God commands us in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. But again, even in that, it is tainted. It is flawed. But verse 13 gives us the hope again of righteousness. For we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself of people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's not here yet. We eagerly wait for that day to come. And that hope is not on our righteousness and producing a righteousness, but in the gift of God. You see, faith is the key that unlocks the motivation and the strength for you and I to continue in the gospel and our flawed humanness. Either you are trusting in the law, obedience to a set of standards, or by the strength and by the strength of your own will, or you're trusting in the grace of God by relying in the work of the Holy Spirit. For you and I know that glorification will come one day. But it comes not because of our works, but because of a gift of a loving Father. Paul ends verse 6 by writing that we are to take no pride either in circumcision or uncircumcision. So now Paul now goes to the church of Galatia and says, wait a second, there's no pride whether you are or you're not. He says, don't take pride in either, but in the faith that we are accepted by God based on the works of Christ. That's where you and I are to take our comfort and our pride. He also contends that true faith looks away from self and that faith expresses itself 
not in just works of obedience, but by love. And there is a difference, by the way. You see, love is the fruit of faith, as Paul will write in Galatians 5.22, and we'll look at it in the next two weeks. You see, you and I are to be motivated by love and not works. For one who is motivated to produce their own righteousness, what is their motivation? To make themselves look good. To do as much works to make themselves right in someone's eyes. God calls us to be motivated by love. You'll see in their Bible, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 40, you see God's command. Look at it. You know this. It's called the, the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says this is the great and final commandment. And what's the second? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you, that type of love is not attainable through the flesh or by natural means. We cannot obey this commandment. They are only attainable through the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit and regeneration to those that have put their trust in Christ and not themselves. So Paul is coming to him and says, you want to produce good works. I understand that. You know what? We all want to do that. We already said that's what he created us to do, right? We all desire to do that. But God says that fruit is not one of love, but of one of self-evaluation or self-lifting up. Do we want to produce fruits that lift ourselves up? Or do we want to have the type of fruit that lifts Christ up? That's only motivated by love, not in self-love. I want to bring you now as we come to the end of here. So I want to give you some practical applications here. As we need to understand is that there's some pearls of false doctrine. False doctrine finds itself very easily into the church. The Catholic Church is one of them. There are many other churches that are found themselves in the word and faith prosperity movement. There are many in, the, in those that, are, that observe things that are wild out there. But we need to hold on to it for the church to be pure. So how do you and I do that? Well, first, there's the things that I always say, things to know, things to do, and things to be. The first one I'd like to give you is that you and I are to know that there's only one way to be made right before God. The exclusivity of Christ is a horrid fact to many people. But it's important to know that there is only one way to be made right with God. Second Timothy tells us, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. You and I need to know the Word of God. Why? Because in it, all the words that pertain to holiness and godliness reside. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But unfortunately, many people now say that's not so true. And I'm speaking of those who would claim to be Christian pastors, Christian seminarians, and Christian um, theologians. They would claim that there's many ways to God. But let it not be so. You and I need to know that there's only one way to be made right with God. The second thing that we need to understand is that what we are to do is to remember the gospel as we eagerly wait for the final glorification and the final sanctification as we warn others against apostasy and abandoning the truth of the gospel. 
You and I need to be in the same position of Paul, defending the gospel. Let me tell you, if Rob ever comes here, if I ever come and I start adding to the gospel, then you are to stand up against me in love, rebuking an elder, and say, it's not so, let's search the Scriptures. Let us be Bereans, where it says, they search the Scriptures daily to see if so, such things were true. The same way, you and I ought to enable others to share that. I was in that Facebook post with that young lady that I spoke of earlier. And when I shared with her, are you sure that you were born within sin? And I was giving her those verses. I started to feel the pushback. At the end, she just kind of just shut me down. We don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. It's better to be in ignorance. We'll let someone else decide for us what we believe. That's what this lady in the Orange County Register says. I'll let the Catholic Church tell me what to believe. Martin Luther never said anything against it. The Bible doesn't say anything about it, so I'll just accept whatever they say. Do not accept, by the way, everything I say as gospel truth. Test it, try it, examine it. Let me tell you, you may not understand this, but there are times that I'm wrong. Ask my wife, my daughter. They all know those times. But you know what? We need to be willing to learn and to understand when we are. Scripture is the Word of God. We need to eagerly wait for it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, telling me rightly handling the word of truth. Amen? Let us be that type of people. There are some of you that may be holding on to doctrines that are not truly biblical. You have a worldview or life perspective that you're holding on because it's something that's precious to you for whatever reason, but yet it's an error. That very error could be separating you from the work of Christ. And then let's do the last one. Is that you and I are to be comforted in God's grace and meet the needs of others in love. We need to be comforted in God's grace. So many people are afflicted and hurried and frustrated. Do more, do more, do more, be more, be more, be more. But we need to be comforted in our flawedness. We need to understand that we're not going to be perfect. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.17, a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You're saying, well, what does that mean? The man of good work? The Bible has been given to us. Doctrine has been given to us that we may be complete. Equipped for every good work. It doesn't say that we're always going to be equipped. It doesn't mean that we'll always do it perfectly, but that we may be equipped for every good work. You and I need to work at it, but we need to understand that we're to be comforted in God's grace. Sometimes I wonder why we are drawn to self-reliance and the religion of works. What is it that continually drags and, and pulls us away from the grace of God. I believe other than our natural pride and arrogance, I'm speaking for myself when I say I believe it's because of our own guilt and our own shame. You and I feel like we have to make redemption to earn our own righteousness. We are performance oriented. And so we feel like there's something more that we should do. It's hard to be comforted in the grace of God. It's hard to rest in God's work. 
And so we're drawn by our own natural desires to do something. But you and I need to see that Christianity is the only religion that deals with guilt and shame with a gift of the gospel. Would you receive that? Would you hold on to it? Would you understand the importance of holding on to that doctrine? If not, you pull yourself away from the very grace of God that allows you to stand before a holy God and hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, thank you for your word. Strengthen us, comfort us, encourage us with your word this morning. For some, I pray that you will rebuke them, that you will convict them, that you will challenge them by your word. Each and every soul here needs something different today. I pray that you would do so. And may you lift up this body to hold dear to each and every heart the gospel of salvation by faith through grace. We thank you for this. We pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.